Um, Shall we pray? Shall we just look at those verses um, together? Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we can just come in here and be still before you and, and Lord, just worship you. And Lord, I just really ask that you just give us that quiet, Lord, in our hearts, that calmness, Lord, that sense of your peace. And Lord, I'm sure there are many here in this room that need your peace this morning, need your grace to overflow into their lives. And, but Lord, we pray for our nation as well, that Lord, that peace would spread across our nation, across our world, in fact, as well. And Lord, we do echo those prayers for Kevin and countless other, Lord, boys and girls like him, Lord, whose whole lives change simply because of who they believe in. We pray, Father God, that you would be near him and that he would know your joy and your hope that goes beyond his situation, or beyond even the grave. And we pray this morning you'd speak to us as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before I start this by reading you a, uh, a story, um, it is a true story, but written slightly differently to how you may have read it. Um, we're here um, just a, a week before Palm Sunday and then obviously two weeks before Easter, um, or the Easter weekend at least, when we remember Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Uh, it is the center point of the Christian calendar. This is what we gear up for in a way. The world gets very excited about Christmas and, uh, and so do we, some of us, um, but we get excited more really about Easter. Easter is far more um, significant to us because it is the life, death and resurrection of the saviour of the world. Without him we are as lost and as hopeless as anyone else could be on this planet. So this is a story of something that happened a short time before Jesus was um, arrested and then crucified. Uh, he's with his disciples, he's having dinner and then this is from one person's perspective, the disciple Peter <clears throat> says this, the room is getting dark, the lamps are lit and the air is mild. From far away, there are sounds of music floating through the open windows, the sounds of others feasting. There is an air of expectation in the room. We've seen the impossible these past couple of weeks. A man born blind, seeing for the first time. A dead man, rotting in the grave, comes to life again and eats with us. Awesome. Now must be the time for the new kingdom to come. But now we eat together. We sit at the meal. Jesus takes his place in the center and we begin to eat. But then Jesus stops abruptly, puts down his cup of wine. Suddenly he gets up from the table, takes off his outer clothing. He takes a soft woolen towel from a hook and wraps it around his waist. He grabs a basin and water from the nearby door. He comes to where Andrew is sitting. At the end of the table, begins to wash his feet. What on earth is going on? Foot washing is normal for us, but usually it's done by a servant, if there is one, or by one of us. We're dusty, our feet powdered with grey and white sand blown in from the desert and our feet are sticky with sweat. Jesus shouldn't do it. He's our guest of honour, the new Messiah. Kings don't wash their own feet, never mind someone else's. For a minute or two I can only watch open mouths and then he reaches me and I, have, I know I have to say something. I say, Master, are you going to wash my feet? He looks up at me and stares into my eyes as if seeing right inside me. You don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, I say, you should never wash my feet. And Jesus answers softly, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. So then I say, well, in Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. A person, and Jesus said, a person who has had a bath needs only wash his feet. His whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. Jesus places my feet in the water I know that he can raise the dead, yet he is kneeling before me. This feels a little unreal. 
Then he dries my feet, and then he puts his clothes back on. He returns to his place at the table as if nothing had happened. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked, looking at each one of us in turn. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And it was, that was it. Suddenly I understood. We rule by serving. That is our way, not the way of politicians or the generals of great armies who crush those under them. We must do. We just do what needs to be done. Whether it's cleaning feet or kissing lepers or walking miles or singing psalms, we rule by serving. This is a wonderful moment from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. It's a wonderfully challenging moment for the everyday Christian, I think. Here is Jesus, who in just a short time before this moment, is welcomed into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as a king, with the crown shouting, Hosanna, putting their clothes on the floor because he's a king and kings don't even touch the ground, even though he came uh, on a donkey. Fulfilling a 600-year-old prophecy. The king will come to you riding on a donkey. That's how they welcomed him. That's how they worshipped him. They knew they were in the presence of God's only son, the Messiah, the king of kings, the anointed one who had been promised from day one of human history. And as we watch that story, we see this king acts as a servant, acts in a humiliating way. He humiliates himself by washing the feet of those who follow him. In this lead up to Easter, we're going to be speaking over the next couple of weekends about the power of Jesus. How he had the power to overcome death on the cross. And when we remind ourselves just how horrendous his death on the cross was, we will remind ourselves again that no one came back from the dead when the Romans put them to death. No one survived crucifixion. It was done well, and they did it well every time. Jesus was put to death in the most horrendous way. Yet on the third day, he rose to life. The power to take up his life. And lay it down, as the Bible says. And so it just feels right, as we're about to talk about all that power and majesty of our Saviour, that before we get onto that, we talk a lot about humility. Because actually, Jesus was powerful, but also humble. We want, as human beings, all too often a reputation, don't we? Some of us are obsessed with how many Facebook friends we've got, how many followers on Instagram, or whatever else it may be. Or how many times we're asked our opinion. Or how many people seek us out for help because we know what's best. We love a reputation even when we say we don't. Sometimes we claim humility. But really what we want is the the reputation that comes with having humility. He's so humble. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't she wonderful? That's a kind of false humility. But we want that. We like reward for the things we do. I spent hours doing that and no one said anything. We like a return often for the things that we do when we sacrifice and serve, even though the very nature of those words is to be anonymous and do for the greater good. I want to talk about humility this morning because the opposite of humility, being pride, is spoken about in the Bible in the most bluntest of terms. If you wonder what God thinks about pride, uh, or if you think you've got a problem with pride, you better buckle up because I'm about to read some verses that you probably won't like. But it's good, isn't it? It's good to be Uh, challenged about how we live our lives. God wants to refine us and make us the best version, the most godly version of ourselves. I like the phrase that God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like him. 
God wants to chip away all the stuff that doesn't remind him of his son until he gets to see the perfect version of us. And this is what the Bible says about pride, which is the opposite of humility. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Chapter 16 of the same book in Proverbs, chapter 18 even. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I remember once being on the train with my friends. This is a rubbish example, actually. But I remember um, saying something along the lines of... Um, uh, we are talking about who would... I can't, no, it's a rubbish story, actually. Forget it. Forget it, it's a rubbish story. It involved me falling onto a woman's lap. It's a very long rubbish story. Anyway, the point is, I, was, so, so I, I never fall over on a train. I can just stand without holding onto the bar. I was about 13. That's what I was doing. That's what I can remember the story. But we were seeing who could stand up and not fall over as the train rocked. And I said, no worries, I would never fall over. And then next thing you know, the train went like that. And I landed in this little old lady's lap. It's very embarrassing. Um, but pride, <laughs> um, she was surprised as well. But a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. We love that phrase. It comes from the Bible. James, if you were to flick forward to James chapter 4, hang on, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, says he gives us more grace. And then it says, God opposes the proud. So it's not that pride doesn't work or it brings you down. God actually opposes the proud, but gives, shows favor to the humble. Uh, the Bible is very clear that God does not like arrogance, does not like pride, and comes against it when he sees it in his people. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. How many people do you know, or how many times have we ourselves thought more of ourselves than everyone else does? And we're ever so offended when we're not treated the way we think we should be treated because we're something. But actually, you deceive yourself when you feel like that. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Again, Paul says, be joyful in hope. That's verse 16, sorry. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride is a terrible thing. And there's a story in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Jesus tells a story, and a story of um, a tax collector uh, and a Pharisee. And it goes like this. Yes, parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated. Pharisees were considered the, the, the creme de la creme, if you like. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, two times. I give a tenth of all that I get. You can just feel him doing that. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be Exalted. That story shows us the danger of pride in our lives, in society, in our families. Pride leads to self-righteousness. Pride leads to being judgmental of other people. They're not as good as me. Blind means, uh, pride means you're blind to what's good. That Pharisee missed the good thing that 
tax collector was doing. And pride leads to being contemptuous of everybody else. Wikipedia, um, the great font of all knowledge, we can trust it with our lives, says this, it's never wrong, says this about pride, that pride is an inwardly directed emotional term that carries two meanings. With a negative connotation, pride refers to a foolishly and irrationally corrupt sense of one's personal value, status or accomplishments. And then it says this, in Judaism... Pride is called the root of all evil. If you suffer with pride, take that home, if nothing else. And when we, we shouldn't mention the B word, but Brexit again. Is there a bit of pride mixed up in some of the conversations that have gone on in Parliament? There are some wonderful, humble politicians, men and women of great character. But there are some that I'm sure have got in the way, for pride's sake. Wouldn't it be good if there was a bit more humility in that conversation, on all sides, Pride damages people's lives. This evening at 7 o'clock, uh, we were having our church prayer meeting like we do at the beginning of every month. And this week's one will be focused on Brexit. So if you're able to come at 7 o'clock this evening, um, please come along and just pray for our nation and ask God to really bless the next couple of weeks or year, depending on what they settle on. I'm not quite sure what's happening, to be honest. So let's come back to humility. A couple of quotes about humility. T.S. Eliot said, the only, own, sorry, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. I thought it was a really nice quote. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Augustine, an important church leader from about 300 AD, said it was pride that changed angels into devils. And it is humility that makes men as angels. And then C.S. Lewis, the writer of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, says humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself. We often get that wrong. I'm such an idiot. I'm such a fool. I know nothing. That's not humility. That's false humility, actually. That's wrong humility. It's thinking of yourself less. How different our world would be if humanity replaced pride with humility. If greed and pride and selfishness was replaced with humility. A thought of other people. If we thought of other people more and thought of ourselves less. So what is humility? Humility is defined as a freedom from the pride of arrogance. But biblically, humility is something that's found chiefly and best in God. It is a characteristic that reflects God himself, grounded in his character and his person and his nature. You see, God, even though he has more power than anybody else, is the most humble being in all of the universe. Because our God is one who stoops down to save the lost and the wretched and the broken and the rebellious. It doesn't matter who they are. Our God, even though he is perfect and holy and just, is prepared to stoop and pick up the dirty and the lost and the wanderer. No matter who he or she is, God embodies humility. And so when Christians are not humble, it is shameful because we're supposed to reflect our God as his ambassadors. And there's one passage that Aileen read to us um, a moment ago from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. And I'd like to read it again to you. It describes Jesus' journey from heaven to earth and then to the cross. And the word that describes that journey is humility. So Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to, his, to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is the most wonderful description. They reckon, in fact, it's an ancient song that early Christians would have have sung even. Um, So it probably predates the age of this particular gospel. So it probably goes right back to the beginnings of the early church. But they sung that song, and I won't sing it now. Um, But he's the very nature God, but he didn't think that that was something to be considered. Equality God, not to be considered to his own advantage. Yet he made himself nothing, became a servant, took on the nature of a servant, became a man, humbled himself, even to be nailed to a cross. And uh, the most wonderful thing, Jesus isn't just some guy, he's fully God and fully man at the same time. He wasn't just a man who used to be God, he was fully God. All the power of God was in him, dwelt bodily. The same power to create the universe was at Jesus Christ's fingertips. That's the same power that raised the dead, it was in his fingertips. To create from nothing was his powerful preserve. And yet as he took on flesh and became a full human being whilst being fully God, it's not that he lost those powers, that's incorrect. He didn't lose them when he came from heaven, he chose not to use them. He became obedient to death. Can you imagine hands, as the song says, that flung stars into space, allows himself to be nailed to a cross. He could have at any point created any number of things out of nothing, that was the power he had. Yet Christ decides not to use that power. He humbles himself because he becomes our perfect sacrifice. Beaten, humiliated, spat upon, lied about, deserted, so that we could be saved. Isaiah 53 says he did not even open his mouth. How many times do you hear human beings saying, do you not know who I am? Well, Jesus could have said that, couldn't he? My favorite joke of all times is when someone who takes themselves far too seriously says the phrase, I've never been so insulted in all my life. And then someone replies, you want to get out more, mate? (laughs) That's my favorite joke, don't worry. Um, But at any point, Jesus could have uttered any number of things like that, couldn't he? Do you not know who I am? But silence, as he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross so that all who put their faith in him will not die but have everlasting life, can be forgiven of the most heinous sin because God's grace sets even the worst of us free. That's humility, isn't it? He put our good above his own right to the very end. It's not that he became less of God at the cross. He was fully God and he could have got down at any moment, but he remained there to be our perfect sacrifice. So what does humility do? Well, spiritually, on a spiritual level, in terms of your faith in God, it helps you know him better. Um, It helps you become truly wise. True wisdom isn't just academia. It's the knowledge of God, first and foremost. um, Humanity helps you to know the grace and experience and receive God's grace. Humility is about relying on God, thinking less of yourself or thinking of yourself less, but knowing that you need God more than your own strength. That's what true humility is. It's saying, God, I need you for everything. Every breath I need from you. I'm second, you're first. That's true humility. But humility promotes equality. Because if we're a room full of different people thinking about each other more than ourselves and thinking properly about ourselves, guess what? Everybody's equal in that room. Everybody's equal in that room. It promotes goodness. 
because I spend my time seeking the good of you rather than the advancement of me. Humility means that more people get helped. Rightness is sought over sin and wrongness. And within the book of Philippians, we haven't really mentioned this book, but we just read that chapter. Those, those, sorry, those, those verses in chapter 2 really is the central point of this book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, that description of humility clearly has, affects three areas of life. The writer of this book, a guy named Paul, is deeply affected by the humility of Jesus and how that worked out in his own life. I see, as Paul writes the book of Philippians, if you've ever read it, it's described as a love letter to that church. It's the most upbeat letter in the New Testament. He mentions the word joy and rejoice over and over and over again. I'm so pleased, it's good news, brilliant. He's happy as you could be. Yet as Paul wrote this letter, there were two things that were true of his life. The first was that he was in prison. As he writes this letter, he is in chains, much like some of the people we pray for on a Sunday. That's why we pray for them because they're our family and our saviour went through the same thing, and the early church did as well. But he's in chains. He's in a dark cell somewhere, in prison, because of his faith. And yet when he writes to this church, he's overflowing with joy. So brilliant. You guys are awesome. I love it. Can't wait to get to Philippi if I ever get out. But I'm going to be straight there. Brilliant. The other thing that's happening to Paul is that he's got some people that are a bit jealous because he's quite well known, he's quite well thought of, he's kind of a big player in the early church. And there are some people that are well jealous if you watch The Only Way as Essex, you'd say, well, gel, but none of us do. Well, jealous. They're well jealous of him. And so they decided to do all the things Paul did. They copied his ministry and they did it over there and they kind of did it with a slightly shinier sheen to their face and tried to be more eloquent than Paul was because he wasn't always very eloquent, but he was very passionate. And so people started saying, oh, they're brilliant. This guy's excellent. And maybe someone said to Paul, well, look at them. They're, they're in opposition. They're copying you. Isn't that bad? And Paul says, um, in this book, who cares? I don't care. As long as someone preaches Christ crucified, they do it out of envy or spite, whatever. As long as Christ Jesus is, crucif- uh, is preached. In chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, swallows up both of these. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's talking about prison. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. You can almost hear him thinking, isn't it brilliant? And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and, become, yeah, and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's able to look above his own personal pain and see how God's using it for the kingdom of God and the growth of the church. And then he says in verse 15, it is true. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing, uh, not, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now I've got a level with you. If I was in prison, right, and someone arrested me for being minister of this church, and some other bloke turned up who was better looking than me, and that's hard to believe, um, better looking than me, maybe slightly younger, and that's hard to believe as well. And, uh, and suddenly, all I could hear was, uh, he was a bit jealous of the church and you being the minister, and he wanted to do it, so he kind of snuck his way in, and everyone loves him. I would be in prison thinking, well, that's about right, isn't it? 
All my 10 years, 11 years, slog my guts out every day. All the things, I'll be grumbling my heart out. Lord, well, I don't understand, Lord. What about all the things I've done? This is not fair. Paul just says, awesome. Someone wants to carry it on. As long as he preaches the gospel every week, I don't really care. I love it because he's so humble. He's so focused on God that his personal pain is put in its proper context and his personal ambition is kicked out the park completely. And I think that's a really important thing this morning, and I suspect all of us are perhaps applying that already. How many of us at work feel that we should be always fighting so that someone knows how hard we do it? And I get it, sometimes that has to be done. Or maybe you're going through a hard time and you're wondering where God is. Humility is always the answer. You always need to put God in his proper place. Always lift your eyes to where he is. And try and see what God is doing in the bigger picture and trust him like Paul did. The second effect of that humility um, is is that it affects the church. The church in Philippi, although it was very good and he had lots of nice things to say about it, there was clearly a bit of an issue. Over in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, I shouldn't have picked this because I'm going to pronounce the second name wrong, but never mind. Um, It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is, I plead with Eudora, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of one and the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book. Of life. There's clearly a slight issue with these two women. Um, it sounds like they're uh, fighting, there's a bit of disunity, there's a bit of issue in the church. And the only solution to disunity and fighting is humility. And let me ask you, it's interesting, in chapter 4, uh, as he says to them about being in the same mind. He says, have the same mind, there's the same phrase used in chapter 2, the same mind as Christ. The solution to these two women fighting is humility. So let me ask a question this morning. Have you fallen out with someone recently? Are you at loggerheads with anybody? Is there someone that you can't stand the living sight of? And when they walk in, you think, and they wind you up, just their name gets on your nerves. Are you actually in open, active conflict with another human being? Or are you in open, active conflict with another Christian? It's even worse. It's not even worse. It's the same, but worse, if you see what I mean. It's not good. Are you in any of those things? If you're a Christian this morning, maybe it's time... For reconciliation. Are we more focused on winning the argument than winning the person and saving the relationship? Are we so obsessed with revenge and our anger that we've forgotten to forgive and be affectionate? The only thing that will save church unity is humility. And when churches become arrogant and proud, it's not long before God leaves and the whole thing falls apart. This church would be no different. We can say, look how big we are, all the great things we do. And he takes a couple of key relationships to fall apart and Satan rubs his hands like that. Brilliant. Excellent. And the whole thing can fall apart. Humility is always the answer. And then the third area that humility makes a big difference. Individually, the church, and in the city. Um, That church remained open because those Christians remained humble. And they remained godly and they preached the gospel. And that church went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. How many thousands of people got to know their saviour? Because those women and women, every generation, were humble and not proud and put Jesus and other people first. And so, to finish, we need to practice humility. 
because it's sorely needed and sorely missed in the 21st century Britain. We need to be praying for our political parties, praying for our politicians, rather than disliking Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Ian Blackford and all the other ones whose names I forget off the top of my head, Um, rather than getting cross with what they say and do if it doesn't agree with what we like, why don't we pray for them? Why don't we pray that God makes them more humble and more open to reconciliation and forgiveness and mutual love and respect so that our politics becomes less about parties and more about people? Let's pray for good rather than power. Let's make sure that we become people who desire God to move rather than ourselves to be mentioned. Let's not worry about our reputation because in the end it doesn't matter how popular you are. Give it 50 years and no one will give two hoots about any one of us. You might be fortunate enough to be someone like Florence Nightingale. However, you ask a 10-year-old who that is and they don't know. They might know. They might know who she is, to be fair. So your reputation may last a hundred years, but in the grand scope of all of human history, that's like a pinprick here, so who cares? Live a life worth living. Live a life worth living so much that when you get to heaven, God says, I was watching. Well done. That's how you should live your life, every single one of us. We need to rely on God recognize our need of him even in the hardest of times even when we're in chains whatever form they may take do not be afraid to ask for help seek forgiveness because as we come to Easter we're going to meet a king who's a servant we're going to meet a king who denied himself and he's going to ask us to deny ourselves he's going to begin to ask us when we put our faith in him more to serve not our own interests but those of other people he's going to ask us to carry our cross like he carried his because his kingdom is coming His will will be done, and he wants to save his world, as many as he can. And guess what? We're the people who wants to do it. And we must be humble if we will be effective. Let's pray. Lord God, we lift up all these thoughts this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the challenge of it, Lord. Lord, it's sometimes like like being pushed um you know you you sometimes read things in your word and just think i don't want to think about that this week but lord we look in the mirror and we we don't always see what we we should see lord we pray that you chip away every single one of us lord i believe you call your people to be different to a world that's often losing its way lord we need to be people that aren't obsessed with power and reputation and reward but people who are prepared to give it all away and be anonymous forgotten like john I must decrease that Jesus will increase. May we be determined this week, Lord, not to shout for us, but to shout and champion everybody else. And then, Lord, shout the gospel louder than still. Lord, I pray that this Easter, you'd remind us of a powerful saviour, but a humble one as well. And may we live with those two things clear in our lives and in this church. And ask it in his name. Amen.